So we've been dealing with this coronavirus pandemic now for about a year, and we I just felt it was necessary to kind of reset the topic. I mean, I know we talk about it, at least mention it from week to week, but uh, if you've been listening to Not in the Mood since we started doing this in March of last year, you'll notice like the first probably half dozen episodes were focused primarily on the coronavirus pandemic and, and different uh, things that were going on then. And I've tried to get away from it because it's just exhausting if you talk about it every week. But there's been some major developments this week, and I want to revisit uh, where we are. So let's travel back in time to early 2020 when we started uh, learning more about this virus and it kind of came to America and the next thing you know, we've got cases and cases are piling up and, you know, we all remember the shutdowns and the school closures and all that stuff. So I just wanted to kind of revisit a year later where we are, kind of my observations. Uh, if you listen to the very first podcast, I was very critical of the media's coverage of the virus uh, and the unfolding pandemic. I felt like there was a lot of uh, hype and fear uh, where maybe it wasn't necessary. Of course, back then we didn't understand the full scope of what this pandemic would mean in terms of how many lives would be lost and that sort of thing. And we sure as heck didn't think we'd be still dealing with this a year later, yet here we are. Uh, and so, you know, I feel like there's a little bit of crow that I should probably eat because I was fairly dismissive at first. Uh, and if you listen through, you know, the first few months of the podcast, you can kind of see my gradual transformation uh, from completely dismissing this thing as just another cold or flu to, you know, now my sister had it for two weeks and was very, very sick. My kids and I have each been tested at least three or four times. We've had a few scares. Uh, None of us have had it yet, knock on wood. Um, But you know, I don't know if that's luck or if that's really just my due diligence about wearing a mask and being out like that. Because I know people that literally have not left their house since March of last year. And, you know, they look at me as someone who's still going out and about, going to stores, going to restaurants, going to work every day. And they're like, I don't get it. How is it you've been so careless, quote unquote, with all this, and yet you don't have it? And I think Careless is not the right word to use because I don't feel like I'm careless out and about. I mean, I try to stay at least six feet away from people whenever I can. You can't go in anywhere here uh, in central Florida without wearing a mask. Uh, I did, I did, however, go up to Ocala uh, a couple of weeks ago to visit some friends, and I was amazed by how many people don't wear masks. And I was amazed by how many people have a sign in their yard that says faith over fear. And apparently that protects them from the coronavirus and they don't have to wear masks. I don't know. I don't get that. I mean, you know, one of my biggest criticisms of the way the, the quote unquote experts and the authorities, you know, the world health organization and the CDC, one of my biggest criticisms of the way they have handled all this is that their guidance changes from week to week. And you've got one, uh, you know, the World Health Organization says masks don't work. You don't need to wear masks. The CDC says, well, we're not sure if they work or not, but let's wear them just to be safe. And now they've both said, no, the masks work. And literally just this week, the CDC came out with new guidance for wearing masks. And they say you should be wearing two masks. You should wear a paper mask first and then a cloth mask over that. I don't know that that's entirely necessary. I mean, I certainly get the science. If you've got one layer and you add another layer, you have twice the protection. I can do simple math. That's easy enough. 
Uh, somebody asked me the other day if I was going to start wearing two masks out and about. I don't think so. Maybe if I were flying or if I had to take mass transit or I had to sit on a train or a bus. Uh, you know, maybe if I knew I was going to be in a situation where social distancing just wasn't possible, then yeah, it's probably best to wear two masks just to be safe. But my problem is we are still learning so much about this virus. The vaccines come out since we started talking about it. Now people are getting the vaccine, you know, and they're saying even after you get a vaccine, you still need to wear a mask. You could catch it again. You could absolutely transmit it asymptomatically. And to me, that just, it's like, I understand that we're learning all this in real time, but you know, there are some people who are not comfortable getting vaccinated just considering what we don't know still. And I'm not going to tell that person that they're an anti-vaxxer, but if you're going to put a chemical in your body, you really want to know what it's going to do and what it's not going to do. So when, you know, when you've got the CDC saying, well, we're not sure if you can still transmit the, the virus after you get vaccinated. So, so just be safe. You know, I don't know. I, I haven't made a decision yet personally as to whether or not I plan to get the vaccine. I'm still way behind in line. My mom is ahead of me and folks with under underlying health conditions, you know, I would hope would be prioritized ahead of someone like myself who doesn't have any major health issues that could uh, comorbidity, I think is what they call it. Um, So as far as, you know, Daryl, will you get the vaccine? I'm not there yet. I'm not sure. I don't know. I'd like my mom to get it. I'll tell you that much. I'd like my, my older sister to get it for sure. Not sure if I'm going to. So, and you'll recall one of the uh, major topics that we discussed for a few weeks was schools, opening the schools. I mean, looking back to last year, it was like I took the week off to spend spring break with my kids. And before spring break could even get here, everything was closed. And my kids literally did not go back to school until October of the following year. So I spent, you know, the last few months of the 2019-2020 school year teaching my kids from home and trying to work from home. And I'll be honest, that was probably one of the most stressful times of my life, maybe with the exception of getting divorced, but it wasn't fun. And by the time August came around, I was ready to send my kids back to school as soon as the schools reopened. Uh, My ex-wife wasn't that comfortable. We decided to just keep them back for the first nine weeks. And by October, you know, we weren't having widespread outbreaks in schools and they weren't closing schools left and right. So we both felt comfortable sending the kids back to school and they're there now. Uh, and to my particular school's credit, they've done a great job. As far as I can tell, I think they've had a total of four coronavirus cases confirmed in students on the campus. That's incredible considering how big the school district is and how many kids we have and, and the fact that we live in central Florida and the vacation capital of the world. And it's just, we keep living kind of a transient, uh, transient place. And there's a lot of people coming and going, a lot of opportunities to pick up a virus. Uh, so let's start first by talking about the schools. And just this week, I interviewed the head of the custodial services department with orange County public schools. His name is Kevin Ballinger. And I wanted to talk to him uh, just to get a sense for what are you guys doing there in the schools to protect the kids? Okay, basically, our, our cleaning concept did not change. We clean and disinfect even when there wasn't a pandemic because we still have flu seasons and any other bacterial um, transfer from student to student. 
but we've increased the frequency of how we do those processes. Uh, so clean and disinfect basically it can involve you clean the areas where it's desk and light switches and locker lockers and doorknobs and anything where children commonly will touch, um, pencil sharpeners and so forth. We'll clean that, and then you did put disinfectant on it, and then you wipe off the disinfectant. So it's kind of a three-phase process, um, and we normally do that just all throughout the day. We've staffed up now where our working hours match those hours with the students. So all day long, you have a maximum amount of custodians wiping all those high-touch point areas and making sure that the opportunity to transfer from object to object or person is minimal. And in the event that you have, let's say, two or three students in a particular class that come down with positive cases, what additional cleaning do you do in those areas? If we had any time we have a positive case in any of the classrooms, we'll, the classroom of that area is isolated until we go in, and then we go through the same steps of cleaning um, in all the areas and all the touch points again, high touch points, and then disinfect it. And then in addition, we also have a um, electrostatic sprayer that will spray disinfectant and it'll land and that type of sprayer designed to not only hit the top of surfaces but the circumference of a surface also. And then you can let that dry and it's normally about a 15 minute process before it dries. What are the most heavily used surfaces that get the most attention from the custodial department when you're COVID cleaning, so to speak? Two things. One would be um, any high touch point areas that I've discussing the other areas, which include light switches, doorknobs, um, computer, keyboards, uh, desk, chairs. And then when we go external to there, any highly occupied areas where there are multiple people in one area. So we're talking about cafeterias, cafeteria tables and chairs, restrooms, sinks, toilets, um, and any handrails and things like that where the kids are going to transfer and you have multiple children going through there at one time. And can you just give me a little bit more detail about what products you're using and, and the process for each of these surfaces? Um, basically, one of the products that we use is called Pinequat. It's a a disinfectant that is approved by the CDC. And the process that we use with that involves cleaning first and then disinfecting, where the disinfectant, you cure time, you dwell time to give you that 99.9% .9 bacteria kill claim. In most cases, it's three to five minutes. Fantastic. Uh, are there any other details I left out or anything else you want to make sure parents are aware of, kind of putting their mind at ease, that sort of thing? No, I think the, the biggest thing that um, I would add to it that's kind of general and the parents may not be aware of is that our work hours used to be extremely different. We had a couple people that came in during the day, mainly to handle emergencies, spills, and things like that, where now we have maximum staff all day long at the same time the children are there. So if you went into a school, you would see that custodians are walking around continuously wiping the areas and the high touch points, as I described before, the restrooms, the cafeterias, any opportunity to wipe and clean and disinfect, they're taking care of it during the day. And not only during the day, but also a lot of time they're working after hours to make sure that any areas that they didn't get to get accomplished and if we had any events in the schools in the evening, they're also taking care of those areas to give them the same type of treatment that we have during the day. So my hat's off to Kevin Ballinger and his team. You talk about a job that I would not want. Kids are disgusting. We all know that. 
And I could only imagine the job that they have every day, scrubbing multiple surfaces, sanitizing. Uh, just it's a monumental task. And, you know, I think the fact that Orange County Public Schools has 220,000 some odd kids, more than 200 school campuses, and they're still sending kids to school five days a week is just a testament to the work that uh, Kevin Ballinger and his team are doing. So hats off to those guys. Now let's transition to these new CDC guidelines. Uh, I'm going to share with you now an interview that I did with Dr. Alonzo Plow. He's the chief science officer for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and they were originally pitching him as a guest to talk about the disparity in vaccines, how uh, members of minority communities are not getting vaccinated at the rates of white people and seniors and that sort of thing. And we wanted to talk about uh, how to increase the vaccination rates in those communities. But they also offered him up to talk about the guidelines. So, like I said, given all of the back and forth from the World Health Organization and the CDC, what you should do, what you shouldn't do, what's good, what's bad. Now we're talking about wearing two masks where a year ago they said masks are a waste of your time. So I just wanted to open up with that. Kind of explain to me what these guidelines are. Yeah, okay, uh, fine. Yeah, you know, first, as, as uh, with a novel virus and uh, a pandemic, you know, the science, the evidence evolves in real time, right? So what we have seen throughout the course of this is um, trying to keep up with a virus that itself is changing um, and better science about what it means to protect ourselves. So I think that is uh, behind the new message from uh, CDC around masking, uh, particularly the concern of the um, uh, more increased um, transmission, uh, the more of the new variant, uh, that double masking uh, could be more protective. Um, and again, I saw this myself in the grocery store yesterday, that people were listening and they were double masking. Now, I double mask and it is a little more uncomfortable. Uh, the real critical thing uh, is to keep social distance um, and not go to crowded areas. So um, masking is important. It, it kind of protects you a lot. But the thing that really protects you is not being in crowded situations, uh, bars, restaurants. That's where transmission happens. Um, and uh, any kind of masking is better than no masking. So um, I think the CDC uh, guidance uh, was as CDC should be, um, what is the most cautious uh, thing that one can do to provide uh, the largest evidence of safety given their assessment. And you talk about learning in real time and adjusting guidelines in real time. Uh, has there been anything else major that we've learned in the last year? Well, we've learned some things that I think those of us in public health know, but in the population have learned recently that Viruses mutate. They change. That's what they all do. The basic uh, viruses that cause the common cold change from season to season. So I think um, we are are seeing in real time uh, the uh, changes in this particular virus, uh, which really requires us to accelerate our uh, ability in our effort to uh, vaccinate the population because a fully vaccinated population uh, will protect against uh, those, those variants or protect against the spread of those variants. Uh, and again, as I think behind your question, there have been um, perhaps different messaging about masking. Uh, the initial message uh, around uh, reserve uh, the mask for uh, critical workers adjusted to say, well, uh, 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 try and don't use uh, N95s, but do some kind of masking. 
um, again, um, as we learn more, um, as we have different tools to combat uh, the virus, um, multiple vaccines, um, and a different messaging about those different vaccines, some are two dose, uh, some are one dose, um, the messaging uh, changes and the science evolves. And the vaccination effort is, uh, we're about, you know, six weeks in nationwide, and we're seeing disparities uh, among populations of color here in florida we've had a seniors first focus uh the critical health care workers were vaccinated first but then the state kind of immediately transitioned to seniors above the age of 65 do you think that is a, is an effective strategy uh when trying to protect the overall population uh, a strategy to prioritize high-risk populations is uh is is a good strategy and and the strategy to prioritize essential workers uh seniors uh, are really critical, but also, um, and I, you know, looking at some of the data on, on Florida, uh, some of the uh, racial disparities in vaccination. I mean, in some of the data I've seen on Florida, uh, you know, uh, the black population, for example, seventeen um, percent of deaths on fifteen percent of cases, but only six percent of vaccinations. I think it's very. We think it's very, very critical uh, that we uh, that vaccination outreach strategies. Uh, reach these communities of color uh, who, because of historic discrimination and lack of health insurance, um, and, be, and and therefore having underlying conditions like diabetes, untreated uh, blood pressure, really are more susceptible to poor outcomes if they're uh, infected uh, with COVID-19. So um, a prioritization strategy based on scientifically valid risk factors, age, uh, uh, complexity of your underlying conditions, um, all that is really essential. And we're, we've also seen higher transmission and infection rates in these populations of color as well. Uh, what type of efforts would you recommend to educate these folks about the need to get vaccinated? Well, our, you know, I think we start with um, having to build trust in a situation where the trust may not have been there in communities of color. Again, if uh, if there is, as there unfortunately are in too many of our states and cities and towns, if there's a history of lack of access to usual health care, um, um, being ha- not having insurance, um, you know, those are the kinds of things over time that do not build trust around uh, public health or, or health care uh, strategies. So it's really critical to do the kind of outreach using trusted voices, uh, faith leaders, community leaders, along with public health leaders and others, need a symphony of supported voices uh, to build the trust. And then you need um, multiple outreach strategies uh, that are easy to find, pharmacies, uh, churches, uh, uh, fire stations, where people know where they are, um, and that they're open m- many different hours of the day because uh, many of the folks in those communities are essential workers, work a couple of jobs, work odd hours, they need to be able to have access to vaccination uh, at many different times in many different places. I mean, those are some of the things that we need to do um, uh, because those are the underlying reasons. It's um, a historic lack of trust, which which is understandable uh, given some of the um, discrimination that uh, those uh, communities, our communities have faced in the past. 
And I feel like regardless of your of your ethnicity or, or your socioeconomic status, if you've paid close attention to the quote unquote experts, uh, you know, throughout the course of this pandemic, now we're about a year in, it seems like the direction and the advice from the CDC and the World Health Organization has changed from week to week and often contradicts each other uh, from time to time. And, and with respect to the vaccine, you know, I think the conventional wisdom is that I get the vaccine, I'm safe, I don't need to wear a mask, I don't need to worry about transmitting it, but that's not the direction that we're getting from the CDC. They're saying even once you're vaccinated, you should still wear a mask, you should still social distance. How do you, uh, in a sense, assure the public that the vaccine is even worth taking, given that there's so much that we still don't know? Well, I think that it's the, the evidence is very clear, and I think you hear it every time Dr. Fauci is uh, on, on television and other experts, um, one, you know, one thing that you have to communicate to the public is uh, the, uh, the rigor and the objectivity and actually the transparency of how a vaccine gets, gets essentially uh, certified uh, by, by the FDA. Very rigorous process uh, that the vaccines that have, that have gone through that process have. Uh, so, so part of that is understanding that that is transparent. It is there's a lot of oversight of the pharmaceutical industry and the production of this uh, by other outside experts, and so no vaccine gets to the point of being able to be given to a population without a very transparent, very rigorous, tested approach to its its safety and effectiveness. So that's that's the first thing. Um, um, but the, the second piece of it, uh, I'm going to go back to what I said before. Science evolves. Uh, and when you have a, a new virus like the uh, COVID-19, um, you are learning in real time uh, uh, what to do. Uh, you have to develop the vaccines. Um, you We had to learn how important aerosolized uh, exposure was. I think early on, people talked mainly about hand washing. Then we realized that uh, the virus could hang in particulates in the air. That gives us uh, the masking um, and then the social distancing uh, uh, following from more knowledge about the characteristic of the virus. So I wouldn't say that there are different messages. And I certainly wouldn't but I would say there's an evolving knowledge about what we know about the vaccine and what is most protective. Well, Dr. Plow, I'm going to ask you to prognosticate here and look into the future. Uh, there are some who are now speculating that this vaccine uh, is going to become, you know, the virus isn't going away anytime soon. And there are some that are now speculating that the COVID-19 vaccine is going to become as common as the flu shot that we get every year. Do you think this is something that we're going to need to be vaccinated for every year? I don't want to prognosticate because I think we'll be uh, learning a lot more about this. And, I, and I'm an epidemiologist. I'd like to uh, uh, wait to see uh, what, the, what the data look like. Um, you know, and I think the, 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 the speculation is, is around the fact that uh, the corona, COVID-19 is a, is a coronavirus, but so are a lot of the viruses that are also components of what causes the common cold. So uh, I think we will just need to uh, get the data about the evolution of this virus, uh, how uh, long term uh, the protective effects are of the current uh, vaccine products. Um, and then I think that will determine uh, the frequency of, uh, of other vaccinations, uh, whether those are uh, booster shot type vaccinations that we often see with certain kind of vaccines 
or a different frequency or whether you don't uh, need a one at all. That is all I think still to be determined. Now, I don't know about you, but I take absolutely no comfort in that. Still to be determined. I feel like we have been operating under that assumption. Everything is still to be determined for a year now. And I mean, I'd like to think the experts know more about the COVID-19 virus now than they did a year ago, but who the heck knows? Uh, What I do know is that I personally haven't caught it yet, but I wear a mask everywhere I go. I haven't caught it yet, but I also do everything I can to not get really close to people that I don't know and see on a regular basis. So I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Hopefully you and yours will continue with your protocols, whatever they are. And hopefully, eventually, the science will catch up with this virus and will get a better understanding of it. And maybe this is the type of thing where you get your COVID-19 shot every year. I don't know. Like I said, I don't take a lot of comfort in, in you know, the fact that we still don't know. But, I mean, if there's one thing we've all learned by now, it's that you just have to be patient. So, you know, here we are, coronavirus, one year later. These are my thoughts. I'm sure we'll be talking about it again at length at some point before we can finally declare this pandemic officially over. So, uh, once again, I want to thank you for listening to Not In The Mood. Uh, if you are not subscribed to the podcast, I highly recommend you do that. Just because, like I said, I don't know what days I will be uploading the podcast. I don't do it on the same day every week. Uh, the subject matter obviously changes every week. So my suggestion to you is to get uh, subscribed, whether you're on Google uh, Podcasts or Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or if you go to WDBO.com and uh, click the on-demand section and listen there. I don't really care where you listen to it, as long as you listen to it and as long as you share. So thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. 